Well, this morning, turn with me to the book of First Thessalonians. We continue in First Thessalonians. We look to chapter five, verses six to eleven. We'll be in First Thessalonians five, six to eleven. As you turn there, you know he was supposed to arrive at any time, and there were ten attendants who were waiting very patiently for his arrival. And uh, waiting, I guess, as patiently as you can for something that you know has been weeks in the planning, weeks coming up, and it's a feast. It's a celebration. I mean, when it's time to party, we're, we're ready to party, right? We, we want that, that rejoicing, that celebration. And so you can imagine that 10 attendants who are waiting for someone to get there, the person to get there, uh, who they didn't know this was uh, not pre-scheduled, he would just arrive at some point, and they were waiting patiently. But these ten attendants weren't all prepared the same. Five of them were very smart. They had everything that they could have needed. They had their whole, you know, their they had their go bag packed. They were ready to go at the moment's notice. They had everything they could possibly imagine ready. They were uh, good Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, if you're into that kind of thing. But five of them were a bit more lazy in their packing. They had some supplies, not enough supplies, but they had some supplies. Well, the person they were waiting for did finally arrive, and he arrived in the middle of the night. And the cry went forth. These attendants who you can imagine waiting up in the middle of the night, you get a little sleepy, you know, and you, you nod off a little bit. But the cry goes forth. They wake up. Uh, they start getting ready to meet him. They get everything together, except, of course, the foolish five who didn't have enough supplies to go out and to meet him at his arrival. They had to go back into town, had to find the, you know, the first open 24 hour store, which they were in a small rural town. So it's a little hard to do. You know, hopefully the Walmart hadn't closed yet kind of thing. Uh, and they had to scurry to the nearest open store and find what they needed to go back and to enjoy the feast celebration. Well, they did finally get their supplies in order, but as they got back to the feast, as they got back to what they had been anticipating and waiting for, they found that the door was already shut. The party was going on in the inside, but the door was already shut. And as they come up to the door and they knock on it and say, hey, it's us, let us in. The master of the house says, I don't know who you are. I don't, I, I, you could be anyone. You could say that you were the ones waiting for me, but I have no idea who you are. It's late at night. There are brigands about, uh, go away. And so they were shut out. And Jesus says at the end of, uh, this in Matthew 25, verse 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. He tells this parable and I, butchered it and made it a little bit more complex and maybe modernized it a little bit there but he tells us this parable to warn us to be prepared for the marriage feast that was to come when Christ returns and he comes and gets his bride the church so he says watch therefore for you don't know when the day is going to become uh, when the day will come but it will indeed come watch therefore and on our passage today, Paul and the missionaries continue their instruction in, to the church in Thessalonica about the coming end of this age 
And so this morning, what I want us to see in our passage is this. Be sober and alert, encouraging one another to eternal life. So let's look at our scripture this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So right, Paul is writing to a church, this church that he loves. He really does love this people who are in Thessalonica. And they were torn away from each other by persecution and they have been hindered. Paul and the missionaries have been hindered from going back and seeing them. But they really desire to see them face to face because he... He wants this church to succeed and to grow and to grow in faith, to grow in knowledge, grow in the grace of God. He wants them to be established and stand firm, especially in light of the trials that they will undergo and are undergoing their persecution by their fellow countrymen. And he's moved from an encouraging thanksgiving to encouraging instruction. And the immediate issue is the end of things. We see that at the end of chapter 4. He commends the church to encourage one another about the reality of Christ's return and the resurrection of every believer in Christ, whether uh, dead or alive, at the day of Christ, when Christ returns, the day of the Lord, everyone who is in Christ will be gathered to his side to live with him forever. And then at the beginning of chapter 5, he encourages the church to consider the day of the Lord, the day of judgment that is to come when Christ again will return to judge the living and the dead. And he writes to this church to not be surprised by that day. Don't be surprised by the suddenness of it. It's going to happen. And indeed, they won't be surprised by it. He says says, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 5, you have no need to have anything written to you. They have the instruction. They know the day is coming and they know it's going to be sudden. But he wants to continue to remind the church who they are and what to expect of that day. And so the first thing that I want us to see this morning is that the day is for the awake. And that is in verses six to eight. The day is for the awake. So he says, so then, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. And be sober. If you go back to chapter 4, Paul talks about those who are asleep. And there we know that Paul is referring to those who are dead in Christ. Right? It's very clear from the context. Here, however, he is talking about something different. He's not speaking about death, but rather he is talking about those who are asleep. Those who are spiritually blind. Those who are in a spiritual state of drowsiness and sleepiness and there are two types of people in the world there are those who are awake and alive in christ and there are they have right spiritual life spiritual vitality and there are those who are asleep and dead 
They are in spiritual darkness. They are dead in their sins and trespasses. And so then, he says, so then, at the uh, end of what we looked at last time, verse 5, for you all are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Right? So he says, so then, if it is true that we are children of the light, if it is true that you have spiritual life, if you are saved in Christ, then do not remain in a kind of spiritual stupor, spiritual deafness, spiritual blindness to the truth of what is transpiring in the world around you. Don't sleep as others do, right? Let us not sleep as others do, but rather keep awake and be sober. He goes on and he says in verse 7, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Those who sleep and get drunk do so at night. And the idea here is that there is this way of living that pushes back against the reality, the truth, and invites a false view of the world. Why do you get drunk? Many times people get drunk because they want to forget what is happening to them. They want to escape from reality. You don't drink and get inebriated to experience more of reality. You get drunk and you get inebriated so you experience less of reality. So what Paul is calling us here is a vigilance, is a watching, is a waiting for the coming day of the Lord. In contrast to that, right, there are those who seek escapism from the truth of God's judgment. There are those that want to deny that God will judge the world. They want to deny that Christ is coming again. They want to do this because that means if, if they truly understand that Christ Jesus is coming to judge the world, then they would have to live differently. And they don't want to live differently. John 3, 19 to 21. Jesus speaking says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Why is it that they like the darkness? Because they know that what they do is evil and they don't want to be exposed to the truth of the light. They don't want to admit. And they certainly don't want to change. Here, however, is this inescapable reality. Everything, everything will be brought to light in the coming day of the Lord. And you may now think that you are protected from exposure of your sin. You may think that you are safe and no one else will know because you commit the sin in the privacy of your own home, as it were, in the privacy of your own bedroom, in the privacy of your own mind, that nothing will be exposed. You may think that. But the message of the scripture is clear. Here's a few. Luke 8, 17. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Or how about Luke 12, 2-3? 
Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And I'd just like to stop there for a moment. There was a recent situation uh, of a head coach in the NFL who said some uh, evil things over email. And he probably thought... No, none of this will ever come to light. This is just me having a private conversation between private individuals. And this is just have, uh, this is just me having a little fun, blowing off some steam, whatever you want to say. Uh, he is no longer a head coach in the NFL. He has been, uh, ostracized from the place of prominence he once had because what was said in a, in a private message between individuals has now been shouted from the rooftops. So do not think that what you say, what you whisper in evil in private rooms won't be heard elsewhere. That should be a warning to you. Christ Jesus brought that judgment to bear on that individual. Uh, don't think you're any less apt for that to happen to you. What is done in the darkness will be brought to light in the coming day of the Lord. So whether it happens here now or whether it happens later on that day. Uh, one more scripture. First Timothy 5, 24 to 25. First Timothy 5, 24 to 25. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Interesting what Paul tells Timothy there is he says, some people's sins are conspicuous. Sometimes we know a person is a sinner, right? We see the evil that they commit. Other times we don't, but it will come to light. So too with good works, he says there. Sometimes good works are conspicuous. It's hard to conceal them. And even those that are concealed cannot remain hidden. Everything will be exposed on the day of the Lord. Everything will be brought into light. So, for you this morning, what that means is you can either confess your sin now and live in the light now, or your sin will be revealed later and you will suffer greater loss. And this, brothers and sisters in Christ, should cause you to be vigilant. The truth of the coming day should cause you to be awake and alert. Because here's the reality, right? When we are in the midst of our sin, we think it's fine. That's what sin does. It deceives us. That's what the evil one whispers. Did God really say? God's trying to hold something good back from me. And what we find, if we stop and think about it, if we take a moment and are vigilant, sober, alert, we'll see the truth of that sin. The truth of the coming day should cause you to be awake and alert. God is going to bring judgment. And are you prepared for it? It should cause you to live in that way commended by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The sleeper and the drunk both while away their time, not knowing that tonight might be the night that their sin is required of them. You could look, for instance, to the parable of the the man who built bigger barns in Luke 12. And Jesus says in uh, verse 20 of that parable, But God said to him, Fool! This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Fool, this night your soul is required of you. Paul continues in our passage and says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. If we belong to Christ Jesus, we walk in the light as he is in the light. We are called to soberness. We are called to alertness. And there's at least two elements I think we should make of this soberness. The first is don't be inebriated, right? The opposite of soberness is inebriation. So don't be inebriated. And I mean this in a quite literal sense. The Bible is clear. Don't get drunk. The Bible is clear. We should not be drunk. And nothing much good comes from uh, from drinking. Proverbs 21, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Or how about Proverbs 23, 29 to 35? Listen to this interesting example. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Or how about this more simply? Ephesians 5.18 You do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So when we talk about sober-minded alertness, we have to take into context what Paul is saying here. We have to take into context all of those things that would not give us soberness. All of those things that would put us out of our mind. And there are many substances that can do this. And we should, as a rule, avoid such things. Drunkenness, out of your mindedness. These things do not make for holy living. Indeed, they do quite the opposite. And I've seen it in my own life, how those around me are are made to bear the evil of its effects. And I'm not saying here that alcohol is a bad thing. I'm saying the Bible is clear, don't be drunk. And I'm not saying that there are not medications that may tend to have this effect, that 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 means you should never take them. There are times for wise use of medicines. 
But what is out of bounds for us in Christ is this inebriated living. Because we should live in the light of day. If we live in such a way, if we imbibe in such things that make us forget that the day of the Lord is coming, we're setting ourselves up for failure. You belong to the day. So be sober, be watchful, be waiting for the coming of Christ. Be about the work that he has you to do. So the negative is don't be inebriated. The positive aspect is do be wise and mindful. So what are those wise things that you can do, right? So so when he says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. What is the wise thing that you can do in anticipation of the day of the Lord? Ephesians 5, 15 to 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days, the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the days are evil. What are you going to be about? Wise walking in the day is recognizing that we, what we are in, what we are in the midst. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's look at the end of verse eight there. He says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. What do you need breastplate and helmets for? And I know on the back row there, you all know what breastplate and helmets are for. War, right? War, battle. Understand that you, Christian, are engaged in war. It may not seem that way. And indeed, in our country, there are many Christians who have been lulled into sleepiness, thinking that there's nothing going on. In the Pilgrim's Progress, uh, Bunyan in there, he describes a, a portion of it. He describes the enchanted ground. And it's this place of just kind of this placid place, this beautiful place that makes one sleepy, drowsy, makes one want to lie down and never get up again. It's a place that seems fit for rest, but to stop and to sleep is to suffer loss. Here's the reality. If you are in Christ, you are engaged in a war and a soldier A soldier at sleep is a soldier vulnerable. A soldier asleep at his post is to a company of men dangerous. Because what happens when the soldier does not warn of the coming attack, those who are relying on him may indeed fall into the hands of the enemy. A Christian unaware of the battle in which they are engaged is one who will be apt to be wounded by the enemy. Spiritual lackadaisicalness is a path by which we and those around us will be set up to be devoured by the evil one, that prowling lion who roars about, seeking whom he may devour. 
But let me speak a little bit less metaphorically here because I know I've been pushing that metaphor of, of war and soldier. Perhaps the reason marriages are apt to fail is because we have failed to see the dangers that will undermine the marital covenant. Perhaps we are so quick to lose to lust is because we are never prepared to turn our eyes, to close our ears, or to take captive such thoughts. Perhaps gossip is so quick to escape from our lips because we've placed no guard over our tongues. How often we are carried about by the divisiveness and anger of our culture. How quick we are to read and to watch things on social media and let that stir us up to hatred of others rather than love of even our enemy. The things that you watch, read, and listen to are shaping you. And let me say that again, because it's a simple thing, but it's something I think we fail to really grasp. The things that you watch, read, and listen to are shaping you. Who has the greatest influence over you? And let's not be foolish enough to think that those things that are being produced by our culture, whether that's on YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, CNN, Disney Plus, or anywhere else, are neutral. Don't be a fool and think those cultural artifacts are neutral. They all have a message. They all have an agenda. Even if they tell you, we don't have an agenda. The evil one will use whatever means he has at his disposal to lull us into accepting falsehood, setting down our spiritual weapons, and inviting the enemy into our homes. Ephesians 6, 10-13 Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. There is war that we are to be about. So rouse yourself. Wake up and keep alert. Don't be drowsy and don't be drunk. The day is for the awake. And the saved are for the life. Let's look at that in verses 9 to 10. Secondly here, the saved are for the life. Verse 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here I say, praise God, praise God, because he has not destined his children for wrath, but for salvation. We could look, for instance, to Romans 8, 29 to 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God will, without a doubt, accomplish all his purpose for his people. And we know that one of his things that he wills for his people, we find in the beginning of chapter 4. For this is the will of God for you. Your sanctification, to be made holy, to be made like Christ. God will accomplish 
all that he sets out for his people. If you are his child, then you will win the war. There is sureness to Christ's victory over the evil one. Christ is coming, and on that day of the Lord, when he returns, he will put to an end the reign of the evil one. And never again shall that evil one have rule over this world. He will rule nothing. There are many. There are many who are snatched away by the evil one. There are many, however, who will suffer the wrath of God, which is surely implied here, right? It says, for God has not destined us who are in Christ for wrath, but that does mean that those who are not in Christ are destined for wrath. There are those who in their sleepy drunkenness will fail to obtain salvation and will suffer the just punishment of their sins. But the saved, however, will obtain eternal life. And this is something of a struggle for some of us, and I think myself included, because when we sin, do we countenance God as wrathful or forgiving? Do we countenance God as gracious and forgiving or as wrathful and ready to punish us? And some of you may well consider that Christ has paid the penalty for all of your sins. And so you struggle not so much with this idea that you are not destined for wrath. But for some of you, your sin, when you sin, your first rational thought is that, how can I appease God now? I've upset God, so now I need to appease God. And if you know your scripture well enough, you know that there's nothing that you can do to appease God. You know that there is nothing that try as you may, you can never appease God, but you try anyways, you pay your penance, you punish yourself in the hopes that God would find you acceptable again. But understand this, if you are indeed in Christ Jesus, you are not destined for wrath. You are forgiven. In Christ's sacrifice for your sins included all of them, and yes, even that one even the most recent, even the one yet to be committed. Romans seven twenty four, through chapter 8, verse 2. Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul goes on in Romans 8 there to says that, that we can put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. God has not destined you who are in Christ for wrath, salvation. There's no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. And I understand that this can be hard to accept. But this is the wonder of the gospel. This is the wonder of the work of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we are not destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation. Look at verse 10. Through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Jesus is the one who died for us. He died in our place. He died bearing the wrath of God for our sins. He died as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And I want to overemphasize this in the hopes that it would root itself deep down into your heart and mind. Because the good news is not do good enough and God will accept you. 
The good news is that Christ has done everything necessary to make you acceptable to God. Again, Romans 5, 9 through 11. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Christ's death on the cross accomplished everything necessary for your salvation. And there is not one bit that you can add to it. And the only thing you bring to it is your sinfulness. Without Christ's work applied to your soul, however, you will suffer the loss of the sleeping and the drunk. Without Christ's work applied to your soul, you will die in your sins and suffer the punishment of God for them. Understand that unless you believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son, you will perish. You will not live. You will be cast in that place of utter torment. And listen, please hear this. This is you. You are dead. You are lost. You are cast away forever from God's divine pleasure unless you repent, unless you turn from your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I would encourage you to go to God this very moment and trust in Christ. Pray to him. Ask him. Say, God, save me from my sins. God, grant that I could be saved and not destined for wrath. Make me awake and alive and sober. And he will hear and forgive. He will hear and save you. This is the disposition of any who come to him. The Christian will live and the Christian will live with him. But here he says, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Well, who are the awake or the asleep? What does Paul mean here? There are a couple ways that we can think about this. It could be the waking of life and the sleeping of death, right? We saw that at the end of chapter 4, that when Christ returns, he will uh, bring with him, uh, to join him in the air, uh, those who are uh, asleep in Christ and those who are alive in Christ. It could be that. Uh, it's maybe less likely that it is that, because Paul uses a different word here in the Greek for sleep here in chapter 5 than he does for sleep in chapter 4. And the word in chapter 5 that he uses typically carries with it the, the context, the connotation of the sleepiness of spiritual sleepiness, not just the physical death or physical life. It could be that Paul's talking about literal waking or sleeping. If you are asleep in your bed when Christ returns, he will still call you to his side. And yes, even if you have trouble waking up in the mornings or waking up in the middle of the night, he will still call you to his side. You won't miss it. Uh, the trumpets will play so loud that you won't miss it, right? You will hear the big band uh, coming. So it could be literal waking or sleeping. But it could also be spiritual preparedness and unpreparedness. And as I said earlier, there are many Christians in our country that are lulled into a spiritual unpreparedness for the coming day. They don't think about it. They don't prepare for it. They don't, it's not something in their hearts or in their minds on a day to day basis. They go about their life on thinking of the war that they ought to be engaged in, that they are indeed engaged in, even if they're not ready for the war. And so the meaning here may be something like no matter the spiritual maturity or the preparedness, if you are in Christ Jesus, then you will live with him. 
and some may escape as though through fire. They will escape with their life, but they're not going to reap the rich rewards of heaven as much. They will have the glory of heaven, but there will be something uh, lesser to their experience than those who are prepared, those who are awake and sober, alert and ready. The day is for the awake, the saved are for the life. And let's see finally, uh, verse 11, the encouragement is for the church. So thirdly, the encouragement is for the church. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Again, Paul tells us, tells the church, use these words to give courage to one another, to build one another up, to edify one another, to exhort one another, to admonish one another, to stir one another up. Because we need encouragement. We need building up because we are apt to drowsiness. We are apt to sleepiness. We are apt to be distracted by the things of this world and forget the world to come. We are apt to do that because, again, what does our culture produce? The message of the evil one, which is pay attention to the here and now. Pay attention to the desires of this world. Pay attention to build up for yourselves a kingdom on this earth that will stand the test of time. And rather like the old poem, uh, uh, Ozymandias, all that's left is sand and broken pieces that indicate maybe something great was once here. We build no lasting kingdom here, and we are easily distracted by the message of our culture, so we need we need one another to encourage each other, to be built up, to do that work which we are called to, to do to listen to the scripture, to cultivate in one another that which is greater faithfulness to the Lord. So encourage one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. Take a moment this week, and I mean this quite literally. Take a moment this week. Write a note, send a text message, make a phone call, but build one another up. Stir one another up to love and to good works. Stir one another up to greater faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Rouse one another up from sleepiness. Be sober-minded together. Be watchful together. Invite a fellow believer to walk alongside you to keep watch over your soul. Let the grace of God break in and let the light of the gospel shine into the dark places of your life. Because Paul tells the church here, right, to stay awake, be prepared. Why? Because the day of the Lord is coming. Jesus Christ is coming back for his bride. Jesus Christ is coming back for the church. Will he find her ready? The day of Christ's return is really a day of rejoicing for those of us who trust in him. For that day will be the day of our salvation when we are finally and fully rescued from the wrath of God and from our sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the call to you today is to lay aside every weight and sin which so easily entangles you, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. The days are short and evil. Christ may return at any time. Will he find you ready? Will you be walking in holiness in that day? Will you be striving to show brotherly love? Will you be living out the will of God for you, which is your sanctification? Will you know him in his ways? Will you be ready? I've mentioned it a couple of times, but not the direct reference. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, 
not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, that is the day of the Lord, drawing near. So consider this day. How can you encourage those around you? How can you stir them up to that which love which they are called to show? Consider how you can build them up to obtain maturity in Christ, because God has not destined his people for wrath, but for salvation. But for those who are not of his people, those who do not trust in Jesus Christ, those who do not believe in God's Son as your Savior, you are destined for wrath. As it stands, on the day when you stand before God in heaven, he will cast you out of his good presence forever to suffer the just punishment of your sins for all eternity. Listen and be warned this day. Sin, evil in thought and word and deed, demands God's justice, and he will give it. Don't mistake his slowness to anger, his long-suffering, his patience, his mercy, as ignorance on his part, as inaction on his part. Your sin is abhorrent in his sight. He cannot stand to look upon it. But there is one who bore his wrath in the place of sinners. There is one who has paid the penalty for all the sins of his people. Jesus Christ, this man, God's son, came from heaven, lived the perfect life you could never live, died on the cross to bear the wrath of God, rose victorious from the grave, and ascended and now sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Jesus the Lord, as Romans 4.25 says, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the one in whom you must believe. This is the one in whom you must trust. This is the one in whom you must have faith in order to be saved from the coming wrath. Nothing else will save you. Understand that nothing else you can do or can say will make you right before God. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Having believing parents won't save you. Coming to a worship service like this won't save you. Reading your Bible once in a while won't save you. Good works won't save you. Believing that God is not real won't save you. God is real, and he has made provision for salvation through the person and work of Jesus alone. So repent of your sins today. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Do not hesitate. Do not wait For Christ shall return, and he may indeed return before this day is out. Let us pray. Father God, forgive us. Uh, Forgive us for living in a, a spiritual stupor far too often. Father, for thinking little of the coming day that day when you will send your son to return to this place and to collect his people. Father, forgive us for the spiritual blindness that the, the spiritual blinders we have put on to ignore the reality of the war in which we are engaged. And Father, encourage us this day, strengthen us this day, give us your word this day, rooted deep in our hearts this day, that we would be prepared, sober, alert, ready, awake, and, and waiting for Christ to return. God, we pray for those who do not know you, 
for those who are not prepared for that day, for those who, if you were to call them to account in this very moment, they would stand before you condemned forever. Father, we pray that you would have mercy on such souls. Father, that you would send your Holy Spirit to enliven them, to give them spiritual eyes and spiritual life, that they would see and hear and understand and believe. Oh, Father, do this work, not because we are worthy of it, but because of your great grace and your love. And God, as we look to the coming week, as we think over that which is to come, help us, Lord God, to orient our our lives, our minds, our hearts around the truth that Jesus is coming. We pray these things to you, our God, because there is none other to whom we can go. And we pray, Father, in the name of that blessed, that blessed name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.